You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It was a very cold day in Mankato, Minnesota in 1885, when at a train station, a group of passengers noticed an older gentleman slumped down on the chair. He didn't respond to their calls. And when they examined him closer, realized he was no longer breathing. No one recognized the man. He wasn't from Mankato. Only when the authorities were summoned and they were able to examine his person and his papers did they realize that they were looking at a former vice president of the United States. And not only that, Schuyler Colfax, the vice president under Ulysses S. Grant in his first term, was also a person who knew many famous figures, including that general and president, and including Abraham Lincoln, who he considered a personal friend. Horace Greeley, the famous newspaper editor. Thaddeus Stevens, the famous Republican in Congress during the Reconstruction period and the Civil War. He intersected with so many people that we see in the history books today, and many who we lionize. But in his own time, he was not considered a person of high importance, and to some, just a crook. Gradually, they pieced together what had occurred. Mankato, Minnesota has two train stations, and about a mile or so separates them. It had been cold, it had been snowing, the carriage hadn't arrived to take him to the next station, he decided to walk. And he was able to make it. But the former vice president had a heart attack at the second station before the train arrived. That no one knew who Colfax was by his face could just be written off to the lack of photography in newspapers and pictures in newspapers at the time. Or it could be ascribed to that classic situation of the 19th century vice president. People that were, as one person described it, the second highest level of the executive branch and the lowest at the same time. This you could say about Skylar Colfax. Nothing pleased him more than the theater. And he liked going there after a hard day of counting votes to see actors singing, dancing, expressing, recreating scenes of history so that he felt he was there in ancient Rome or Shakespeare's Globe Theater. It sure beat the conflicts and grinding votes at the House of Representatives in that 
Capitol building with the unfinished dome down the street. What would be better after he was down the street where he banged the gavel and watching plays at old Ford's theater sure be dodging the daggers of the press? Or the horrid stories of war? Nothing like heading to the theater to see the plays, especially with his good friend Abraham Lincoln. For both the speaker and the president, the theater was a respite from what Colfax called the intolerable stress of their jobs. They likely saw musical shows. Shakespeare, Richard IV, and Merry Wives of Windsor. We know Lincoln were at these shows. Some comedy, some romance. It's possible he went with Lincoln to see The Marble Heart in 1863. The story of a sculptor who chases a woman, models her, builds a sculpture out of her, but finds that her heart is cold and she doesn't love him back. The sculpture brings him fame. Everybody loves it, but not the love he desires. He is distraught and dies. We know that Lincoln was there to see the Marble Heart and took great delight in the actor playing there, John Wilkes Booth. Perhaps Colfax was there that night or perhaps not. He attended many with Lincoln. They got along well. Colfax was essential for passing legislation during the Civil War era. Indeed, under Colfax's gavel and Lincoln's support, the 13th Amendment was passed in Congress, which after a quick ratification ended the practice of slavery in the United States. They teamed up on that. And Lincoln felt Schuyler Colfax, like most people did, an affable, get-along guy. Lincoln dubbed him Schuyler the Smiler. But that didn't mean he didn't harbor any doubts about Colfax. He did. Lincoln also felt that Colfax was too much of an intriguer, perhaps. Involved in too many political schemes, aspiring beyond his capacity, is what Lincoln said. Lincoln wouldn't be the only one. To Lincoln, he was a young man. He was 13 years his junior. He had surprised many, becoming the youngest speaker ever at that time. And for some... Colfax's speaker was too affable, too slapney, treating the House of Representatives perhaps like an auction, and he like the auctioneer. One of his opponents called him a potato demagogue. But yet, the criticism from opponents or Lincoln has to be contrasted with, with the fact that Colfax had one of the most productive speakerships during a tumultuous time and was re-elected three times as speaker. Must have done something right. Of all Colfax's trips to Ford Theater, of course, the night that he would remember the most was the time that he didn't go to Ford's Theater. And that was April 15th, 1865. Colfax was visiting two cabinet members and preparing for a big trip out west. And so he declined Lincoln's invitation to go with him to see our American cousin. He called on Lincoln right before the show and was the last to shake his hand, the last visitor besides his theater companions, to see Lincoln alive. Had I gone there, he told a friend, Booth knew me, I am told. I suppose I would have had it. But that is little compared to the president. Colfax would spend that evening of April the 15th at Lincoln's bedside, then ride his funeral train to Springfield. He'd never forget that night. And although he served under another president, This, Lincoln, was always Colfax's president. The two were aligned very well 
on policy, politics, attitudes. Two Westerners, Colfax, in a small way, had been helpful to President Lincoln getting the nomination. It won't be shocking to find that many of these vice presidents, particularly the 19th century, were great speakers. Hendricks, Stevenson, Barclay, even going into the 20th, but kind of with a 19th century attitude, it's the job of the number two to campaign. And in the past, presidents didn't campaign, so the vice president had to lead the charge, go on the attack, bring in the crowds, especially during that tradition of presidents not campaigning. When the party in 1868 chose the Speaker of the House for the VP slot and Grant, running for president, stayed in D.C. in silence, Colfax proved as able as any speaker of his time. He was, to hear prominent German-American Republican Karl Schur say it, a happy mediocrity. It was harsh, but somewhat true. He didn't anger anyone, not strong enough or powerful enough to hate, but good enough to like. It didn't hurt that his state, Indiana, was a prize in the election. We've talked about so many Indiana vice presidents, we still have a few more to go. But Colfax had a way of putting himself in the right place at the right time. He worked strenuously to get there. Maybe it was his upbringing. He was born in New York City, but his father dies before he's born, leaving his mother at just 17, a widow. She moved to Indiana where Colfax had to soon start working. As a young man at 10, was a store clerk earning money for the family. By 19, he would be clerk of the Indiana State Senate, already making speeches, in this case, for his political idol, Henry Clay. Here's what a campaign biography said about him. Schuyler grew up a slender, loving boy, seemingly too delicate to contend with the rough storms of life, reared among grown people, He had no toys or children's plays and was trying to earn a livelihood when he ought to have been in the nursery or at school. He was always a boy man and seemed from the first to understand and sympathize with his mother in her loneliness. To cheer and comfort her was his sole delight and when, but a little child, he would appeal to her to know what he could do to help her along. The mother and son were all in to help each other and the widowed and fatherless each felt They were not entirely alone in the world. Forty years have passed away since the time of which we are writing this in the campaign biography of 1868. But the confidence of early affection is as bright and pure today as it ever was. And Schuyler Colfax and his mother by their fireside presents one of the pleasantest home pictures in America. Now, you don't have campaign videos, so this is what you had to do in this era. Here's what else the uh, campaign biography says. Mr. Matthews, who had married his mother, opened a small store in Indiana, and Schuyler Colfax became his clerk. Again, his genial smile and kind and accommodating disposition won him host of friends, and young Colfax was a great favorite with the villagers and country people. He prevailed upon his stepfather to take the post office into the store, engaging to open and change the mails. Thus, he had free access to plenty of newspapers and could keep himself thoroughly informed on all that was transpiring in the country. Mr. Matthew's store soon became a place of resort, and on Saturday afternoon and at night, the farmers and villagers would gather to hear the news. Young Schuyler was their oracle, and even those who took the papers found it more pleasant to go and hear him tell what was going on than to read the paper. He was always thoroughly informed and could talk in a plain, intelligent way, so as to make himself perfectly understood 
by the simple-hearted, honest people about him. Foreign wars, markets, domestic news, accidents, what they were doing in Washington, great speeches of the time, were all at his command, and he let the villagers know it. Really, you could say, Schuyler Colfax wrote himself into politics. He had a knack for picking the right letters and words that would be put into type and brushed with ink, pressed, hopefully, not only on the printing press, but into the minds of Indiana citizens, so as to imbue a Whig mentality. As he wrote for the South Bend Free Press, this will be a Whig paper. People like Horace Greeley and in faraway New York noticed how well he wrote and asked him, for updates from the state of Indiana for the New York Tribune, a national newspaper, this when he was just 16. And soon he would have enough money saved up to buy the press, to rename it the St. Joseph's Valley Register, and to quadruple its circulation, making it the largest paper in Indiana. That when he was about 25. What spurred this early work ethic? He was a partisan Whig. And a northern Whig in that sense. To him, slavery should not be permitted to grow one more inch in territory. That was his view. He also, at different times, took on the extremism of various abolitionists, particularly those who were starting splinter parties from the main parties. Soon, newspapering grew into politics, and he was selected for the Indiana Constitutional Convention of 1850. The state sent scores of local representatives who were not in the legislature at that time, who were not in positions in offices, and he represented. This meant that Schuyler Colfax is there in Indianapolis at the state convention at the same time that a future vice president, Thomas Hendricks, is also there. But they're on opposite sides, exactly opposite sides. Hendricks, a Democrat, Colfax, a Whig. Colfax was in the minority in this meeting as a Whig. Yet, as Purcell's biographical dictionary of vice presidents mentioned, he could secure compromises and worked on an improved banking system in the constitutional language and was noted for it. Plus, he supported limits on states borrowing money, which he got Democratic support for and limits to the seizure of homes, which he could get agreement on. But on one note, he and Hendricks and a lot of others disagreed. A convention debate over the exclusion of African Americans into the state of Indiana. In other words, there was going to be language in the Indiana Constitution, and Indiana is not the only state to consider and in fact enact laws like these that would actually say, you can't settle in Indiana if you're African-American. That was a way of banning both slaves entering the state and people bringing in slavery into the state and at the same time also free blacks into the state. It's racist. It's white supremacist. It's, it's everything like that. Colfax is bitterly against it. But in this, he's going against the green at the time. In fact, not only do Indiana voters support a constitution that has that language in it, there's a separate referendum just about this issue. And Indiana voters at the time vote 111,000 to 27,000 to support that measure in a referendum. 
But there's a lot of reasons for it. You have to consider that it's both an anti-slavery issue of sorts and also a discrimination. People fearing jobs being taken away, people fearing large amounts of labor being brought in that they can't compete with, all of these things. Colfax runs for Congress the next year, and being against this issue is what sinks him in that election in 1851. He felt strongly about his viewpoints, even when his hero Clay took a position on the Compromise of 1850, which allowed, you know, as a trade-off, a log-rolling type bill allowing things like the admission of California as a free state, the banning of the slave trade in Washington, D.C., in exchange for an enhanced fugitive slave law with teeth. So Colfax doesn't like what Clay's doing. Too harsh and summary, Colfax said, i.e. the compromise was too quickly, too ill-considered. He also supported internal improvements, and he served as secretary of the Rivers and Harbors Convention in Chicago, which in the 1840s, to promote these. And this is where he meets for the first time an also rising older legislator, Abraham Lincoln. Colfax is the national secretary for the Whig Party that nominates Winfield Scott, and he helps Scott to win that nomination in 1852. Finally, he opposes the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and this is how he wins a tough congressional race in Indiana and goes to Washington. When Kansas enacted, or rather, its overrepresented slave-owning minority enacted a slave code, Colfax speaks out against it. Here's how a website History Engine uh, at the University of Richmond describes it. Smiling Schuyler rails against the laws of Kansas. June 21st, 1856. In 1850, the Midwest remained largely undeveloped and in the eyes of many New Englanders. It seemed a very profitable proposition. By 1854, the territories were created by the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which left these states with the ability to decide if the slave trade would be legal in their territories. Colfax, so the University of Richmond says, was a charming individual whose charisma and oratory skills gave him great advantage in the House of Representatives. He did not mind going head-to-head with opponents on the House floor, and on June 21st, Colfax came on the House floor and delivered a speech condemning laws passed by the pro-slavery legislature in Kansas. Watching Colfax battle his opponents on the slavery issue, historian James Dabney McCabe recorded that Mr. Colfax took an active part in the debate, giving and receiving hard blows with all of the skill of an old gladiator. Colfax hit at the heart of the problem quickly by proclaiming, I denounce the, quote, code of this so-called legislature of Kansas as a code of tyranny and oppression, a code of outrage and wrong, which would disgrace the legislature of any state of the Union. Colfax goes on to cite Henry Clay on the issue of a civil war breaking out over slavery. It would be a war in which we should have no sympathies, no good wishes, in which all mankind would be against us. As Willard H. Smith notes, the speech was so memorable that during the Republican National Convention, the speech was distributed. This is the convention of 1856. The speech is distributed on 500,000 pamphlets. He develops fame for this. And again, being from a critical state of Indiana, if you look at Lincoln's, um, if you look at Lincoln's position in, um, 
as a Western Republican, Indiana is going to be central joining with Illinois for those delegates in the Republican convention of 1860 to get Lincoln the nod. You know, Colfax doesn't always support Lincoln. There are, I do see references that during Lincoln's battle with uh, Stephen Douglas in 1858, that Colfax is kind of absent and not clear. You see, Douglas had taken on the Democratic president, James Buchanan, and then some Republicans admired him. You know, Lincoln is more of that partisan Republican at that time that really wants to put the knife to Douglas and end his presidential chances to give the Republicans an opportunity and also perhaps to get the Senate seat from Illinois. But there were some Democrats who were saying, well, this guy's actually taking on the Democratic president. He's on the side of us, at least on this particular issue having to do with Lecompton, Kansas and Buchanan accepting a constitution and Douglas saying it was phony. Yeah, I mean, this, this according to all the powers of Earth, Sidney Blumenthal, I had Blumenthal on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast in 2017. He's writing a great series of books about Lincoln's politics that are, that are quite good, uh, good, good information in them. Douglas invited more Republicans for secret conclaves to share his confidences. Congressman Nathaniel Banks of Massachusetts, Galusha Grow of Pennsylvania. His charm offensive seemed to be making some headway. Colfax, Burlingame, and Congressman Frank Blair urged their colleagues not to criticize Douglas in the hope he might even lead to leap to the Republicans. At the dawn of the new year, Colfax observed that the Buchanan-Douglas feud was opening was in its opening scenes. It looks as though the Democratic Party was going to be hopelessly divided and blown to atoms. The split may be healed, but I don't see how. But, you know, to be fair, Douglas never did go with the Republicans, so Colfax was just participating in a series of maneuvers that were very fluid between 1856 and 1860. And when we get to 4th of July, 1859, Congressman... Schuyler Colfax of Indiana comes to Springfield to meet with other Republican leaders and coordinate for the upcoming national campaign, but misses seeing Lincoln. Lincoln wrote him a letter on July 6th communication, communicating his main thought, which explained the coherence of his actions over the past few months. My main object in such conversation would be to hedge against divisions in the Republican ranks, Lincoln says to Colfax, and particularly for the contest of 1860. The point of danger is the temptation in different localities to platform for something that will be popular just there, which nevertheless will be a firebrand elsewhere, and especially in a national convention. As instances, the movement against foreigners in Massachusetts and New Hampshire to make obedience to the Fugitive Slave Law punishable as a crime in Ohio, to repeal the Fugitive Slave Law, and squatter sovereignty in Kansas. In these things, is, is is a explosive matter enough to blow up half a dozen national conventions if it gets to them. What is desirable, if possible, is that in every local convocation of Republicans, a point should be made to avoid everything, which will distract. This he writes to Colfax. Colfax writes back to Lincoln on July 14th to acknowledge the difficulty of the political task in combining conservatives and radicals. How this mass of mind shall be consolidated into a victorious phalanx in 1860 is the great problem, I think, of our inventful times. And he who could accomplish it 
is worthier of fame than Napoleon or Emmanuel, he concluded. And I assure you, if you will lead in this work, you will find me a faithful follower of your counsel. So look, I mean, he's not the only one. There's many people calling on Lincoln, uh, encouraging him to run. But Colfax is a factor. And when you get to the 1860 Republican convention, Colfax is a uh, important person in Indiana. And Indiana's votes are very supportive of Lincoln. Indiana votes for Lincoln in 1860. Something else happens as we get into the Lincoln presidency and into the Civil War. 1862, the first year midterms go badly for Lincoln. And in 1863, that means that Galusha Grau, who is the speaker, becomes one of the few speakers of the House in history to lose his own seat. Republicans have to elect a new leader, and they look to this affable, well-liked Colfax. He'd served three terms, encompassing the Civil War and Reconstruction. He got very along very well with the powerful House Republicans, including Thaddeus Stevens. He would prosecute the war, pass an amendment ending slavery, an amendment ending racial discrimination under the law. That's the 14th. And after a battle over Reconstruction, he would lead the overrides of President Andrew Johnson's vetoes. When it comes time to impeach Johnson after he violates the Tenure of Office Act and tries to remove Secretary of War Edwin Stanton in order to, for the president to institute his own policy over Congress's will, Colfax steps down into the well of Congress and makes sure that the clerk records his vote as yay. This is a very rare thing for Speakers of the House to do. Usually Speaker of the House merely provide, presides. Even though they represent a district, they merely preside once they're elected. He wants his vote, yes, for impeachment to be recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So eventually he'll face down a president. This is why I think in some accounts, uh, Remeni's the House and other accounts that say, oh, he wasn't a great speaker. Um, there might have been some indignity to how he conducted the office, being a Westerner, his kind of personality being a little younger and enthusiastic. But 
he was a very successful speaker judged on the amount that he accomplished and what he had to face, you know, facing down a president of the United States. But there's one thing that he did as speaker that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. And so that's why I kind of focused on it in doing research. And it all happens the night of April 15th, 1865. That's when it starts. And that's he is the first Speaker of the House to travel to the Western territories and states, Utah and California. And it's not a small thing. I think it's it doesn't seem like much now, but he's the highest government official to get over there. He does it because it's a trip that's requested by Lincoln right before his assassination. He wants somebody of significance to go over to California and to remind the miners of how important their gold was to the Union effort and how with California on our side, the United States will become the treasury of the world. It's interesting, right? How much foresight that uh, Lincoln has. Here's here's what uh, one biography says. I will tell you the points in it. See if you concur with me, Lincoln says to Colfax. And then referring to his promise of the morning to let Mr. Colfax know at San Francisco his final conclusion as to the time for an extra session if one were to be to convene, he grasped the speaker's hand. Pleasant journey to you. I'll telegraph you at San Francisco. Goodbye. And that, Mr. Colfax, whose original minutes of this account of interview follows, was his last goodbye on earth. Returning from his interviews to his lodgings, he hears on Pennsylvania Avenue of the assassination of the president. The president had been shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth ten minutes before. He repairs immediately to the White House and thence to the room at the Peterson House where the president lay unconscious and with other gentlemen remained at his bedside till five o'clock the next morning. The Surgeon General saying that he thought Lincoln might not die till noon, his strong constitution giving way so slowly. The Speaker with Secretary McCulloch and others in waiting, intending to return at eight, but on their way back learned that the President had died a few minutes previously. He had been unconscious from the firing of the shot. But Colfax makes really no decision at all. He's got a duty and he carries out the mission and goes west. Again, from the life of uh, Schuyler Colfax, many things contributed to fix public attention on this overland trip. The hostility of the South, attested on a thousand battlefields, intensified fraternal feeling for the West. It was regarded as an imperative necessity that the West should be bound to the East by a railroad. It was an unknown country. Its gold digging and its silver mining, its deserts, its mountains, its salt sea, its Indians and Mormons were novelties, differentiating it from the homogeneous commonplace East. The war had but slightly affected the Pacific coast. The extreme West had but a very small share in the experience of sacrifice and suffering in which the rest of the country was so rich. In a word, the West was a half-brother, which it was not only desirable but a military necessity to bring into the family as full son and heir. Colfax's name, in truth, was a household word. His utterances had the weight of oracles. They were practical, sagacious, timely, and they had character behind them. Colfax goes on the funeral train to Springfield and then departs for his trip. Here's what he says about his trip to the Utah Territory. He's the highest government, U.S. government official to go there. We stayed a week at the Utah Territory, five days of it, at Salt Lake City, 
and were treated with great hospitality by Mormons and Gentiles too. Brigham Young exacts the first call from all Gentiles who visit there, but I declined flatly. And he came down to the hotel with his apostles and bishops and made a two-hours call on all of us. The first time he had ever made the first call there. We returned his call at his own house, and after a general talk of an hour, he asked me what I thought of polygamy and what we were intended to do about it. I answered him that it was about time for him to have a new revelation stopping it. And we then had a general conversation about it, a square, plain, Anglo-Saxon expression of our opinion. The plainest talk one of the Mormons said who was with us that had ever been had in his house. But I've noticed a seat about me, and I could not conceal my opinions when asked. We went to the Great Salt Lake, 21 miles from the city, and bathed there. And though I cannot swim, the water is so dense, five barrels of it make one barrel of salt. I could not sink. It seemed odd at Mormon houses, where we were invited to dinner to be introduced to the two messes. Look, this is what Colfax is writing. He has his prejudices as a 19th century person, but he's also respectful that this is the power in the Utah Territory, and he needs to acknowledge it. What's some other interesting things? You know, you, you, you look at history, and we study these vice presidents. It's not just about these oddball people, right, who have been forgotten in history, though it certainly is. You also want to learn little things diagonally, right? And one of them is that, look at, look at the politics of visiting people and who calls first and the like, and how that's reported in the newspapers and how important it is, you know, even though you're going to make a call back to the person, it's who goes first is important. And I guess he had to show that. And then also, I guess Colfax can't swim. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So you learn a lot about Colfax from the his interactions, his letter on a second trip that he's going to make, because he's going to actually go twice to the West as Speaker of the House. He's going to go again after the railroad's constructed, and now he's going to take the train. Before that, you'd have to take coach. Here's what he said. I've enjoyed the opportunity of visiting your tabernacle, erected since I was here before, the largest building in which religious services are held on the continent, and of listening to your organ, constructed here, which in its mammoth size, its volume of sound and sweetness of tone, would compare favorably with any in the largest cities in the Union. Nor did I feel any less interest on my present than the former visit in listening to your leading men in their places of worship, as they expounded and defended their faith and their practice, because that faith and practice differed so widely from my own. Believing in free speech, as all of us should, I listened attentively, respectfully, and courteously to what failed to convince my mind. And you will doubtless hear me with equal patience while I tell you frankly wherein we differ. But I have no strictures to utter as to your creed on any really religious question. On this trip, he's going to go to San Francisco. He's going to be up to Vancouver. He's going to see Portland. He's going to ride on the Columbia River and um, see a lot of the West. He, he'll make two trips. He is an important supporter of railroads, or he always has been since their invention and as a newspaper editor, as a congressman, and now as vice president pushing forward, uh, now as Speaker of the House, pushing forward the transcontinental bill. He knew very well Lincoln had supported. He sees Yosemite. 
He makes speeches all around the country. Now, Colfax was well liked. He's a social speaker in D.C. His parties are attended. Those parties would not serve alcohol, by the way. Uh, Colfax was temperate both in his personal life, in his politics. He supported uh, temperance. So you get to the convention in Chicago in 1868, and Republicans aren't sure. They know they want to nominate Grant for president. They're not sure who, you know, they'll nominate for vice president. There's many choices. You have Benjamin Wade, who's the senator from Ohio, a very strong and forceful member of Congress, really wanted to be president himself. There's at least five other candidates, and they settle on Skylar Colfax. You know, perhaps his Western trips did a lot of good, his well-known speech in Kansas. A friend spoke of the dignified impotence of the vice presidential office that he was taking. But you have to remember, Colfax, just like John Nance Gardner, who's going to come later, are trading in a very powerful office for one that's more of a symbol. But he's elected. He is a force on the campaign. He campaigns heavily for Grant and Colfax. Um, he attacks the ticket of Seymour and Pendleton as a quasi-copperhead ticket, as a white supremacist ticket, as a ticket that's going to lead to the South getting its way by other means right after the Civil War. He helps draw the crowds for GOP candidates. And when he's elected, he and Grant speak perhaps a little more than the average 19th century vice president. He is at meetings with Grant. When Grant needs something at the Senate, Colfax, who presides over the Senate as vice president, he has a lot of experience presiding over a body and helping people to pass legislation. You know, he's there in some of these meetings with senators and the president in the vice president's room when Grant is trying to convince senators to go along with him in annexing the island of uh, Santo Domingo, which is we'd now call Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Um, Colfax is there at some of the meetings pushing the issue. He's loyal. Tells a friend, I do love the party and unity more than any personal advancement. But there is something else going on as Schuyler serves as vice president. And that's that, first of all, Grant has indicated in 1868 that he's going to be a one-term president. So Colfax asserts the same. He's going to be a one-term vice president. It's unknown the extent to which Colfax is trying to keep himself open for the presidency in 1872, if Grant's not in the running. And this is just leading to a lot of speculation in the parlors in Washington, D.C. and among the press as to what's going on. There is a growing anti-Grant movement within the Republican Party, and they're going to call themselves the liberal Republicans. Charles Francis Adams, uh, Horace Greeley, these these are people who really turn against the Grant administration, consider it corrupt, want different policies, are willing to join with the Democrats if necessary to get there, to get Grant out and to get the current political machine out. So there's Colfax never quite, you know, certainly never makes any statements in in support of this liberal movement, but there's a lot of talk that maybe they can just make Colfax president in 1872. And some Grant supporters perhaps aren't hearing enough from Colfax that he won't take any of these. Um, 
What does happen is that Grant, uh, Colfax eventually writes a letter to Grant professing his loyalty and saying that there really should be no disagreement between us. Grant writes a letter back the same. But Grant also suggests that perhaps Colfax could become Secretary of State. Grant doesn't agree with his Secretary of State, Ham Fish, on Santo Domingo and other issues. And maybe it would be easier to put Colfax in there and also get a new vice president. Colfax eventually decides that he will contest the vice presidency, but something else has happened. Henry Wilson of Massachusetts has already said that he is interested in the vice presidency. There's a movement for him. And with Colfax saying that he will indeed run again and wants to be renominated for vice president, Wilson decides not to withdraw. And at the Republican convention in 1872, Wilson is put in narrowly above Colfax. Now, it's often told in history that the reason that Wilson replaces Colfax for vice president on that ticket is because of a scandal. But the dates don't line up exactly right on that. It is possible that people knew of this scandal was brewing, and that's part of the reason for their votes. So it's still possible that's the case. But the direct timeline doesn't work there. It really has to do more with the interpolitics of the Republican Party, the fact that vice presidents really didn't have a lot of cachet in any case in at this time, and them just saying, I want to be renominated doesn't mean much. And then also that you had in Wilson a very strong, forceful person who wanted that office. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the scandal that Colfax got involved with, but it doesn't it, 100% line up that that's the reason he didn't get nominated, because Wilson is also involved in the same scandal. So you really don't you really don't change much with that change in vice presidents, but it's certainly something that you know possibly contributed. So let's talk about it. History condemns the vice president we are talking about today. I've read numerous textbooks just to cite two of them, Remeni talking about the house which which brings Colfax in a lot because he was a speaker for for a period there and also Alan Nevins in his biography of Hamilton Fish, just refer openly to Schuyler Colfax as a crook. No one knew how much of a crook he is, things like that. And that's really uh, the story of Schuyler Colfax. This is a vice president that after the vice presidency was not welcome, at least in Washington, D.C. Back in Indiana, perhaps a bit, but not in Washington, D.C., because he was always associated with scandal. Let's talk about the scandal first, which is the Credit Mobilier scandal, and then we'll get into what, uh, how we should view all of this. Essentially, a congressman from Massachusetts, Oakes Ames, whose family is very good at building railroads, is tapped by Lincoln. You're a congressman, you have railroad experience. Let's get this transcontinental railroad built before the Civil War is over. You know, he's tapped by Lincoln to start this, get this going. Ames forms a company called Credit Mobilier, okay? The name of it sounds like a foreign corporation. That's in that's exactly what it's intended to convey, but it's not. It's an American corporation and all it does is pursue contracts with the railroad company Union Pacific. It's a scheme to get all the money, but let the Union Pacific run the railroad. Because you're running a railroad through an area that's desert, unpopulated, it's not very profitable. So the real money is just getting the contracts from the United States government. And that's the way that Credit Mobilier is set up. Now, to get clout 
in Washington, D.C., early on, Oaks Ames goes to some of his fellow members of Congress, including the Speaker of the House, Colfax, including Henry Wilson, uh, including James Garfield, who's going to be future president of the United States, and others, and gives them shares of Credit Mobilier. Many of them, Colfax included, sell their shares immediately. Others hold on to it. There's a uh, James Brooks, a congressman from a Democratic congressman actually from New York, holds on to the shares, and then as they get more contracts from the United States government that Congress is voting for, those shares go up. But most of them, Colfax included, sell their shares, take the cash. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's a bribe, plain and simple. But this is the 19th century, and if you look at some of the influence peddling that goes on today in different forms, and legal forms, you could have many v- viewpoints on what, it, what occurs with Credit Mobilier and how things were perhaps done to get clout you know, on the hill. But here's the situation. Credit Mobilier makes an additional $25 million off the taxpayers than what it cost the Union Pacific Railroad to do the work. So it's an extra profit. It's a corporation that creates an extra profit for its shareholders. And all well and good until one of the investors in Credit Mobilier wants a few more shares and they go to Oaks Ames and he says, no, I won't give you any more. 
And in his letter, he foolishly writes, I, I've given up enough of the shares to get clout in Washington, D.C. This investor, disgruntled, then goes to the New York Sun, which is a liberal Republican anti-Grant newspaper, and exposes the whole scandal. Initially, Republican newspapers quiet us down as partisan. They do point out some things the Sun gets wrong. The number of shares that have been distributed way out of line. But the headlines aren't great. The king of frauds, the sun says on its front page. Colossal bribery. Public shocked. The Democratic press loves it, seeing the two parts of the Republican Party fight. And the grant-hating liberal Republicans actually like it. Republican newspapers call it the credit mobilier lie. The Albany Journal salutes Colfax and how he manly responses to the slander. Vice President Colfax will say that he had nothing to do with it. This is just a campaign issue being brought up by Horace Greeley, his former friend who's running against Ulysses Grant in the 1872 election. Eventually, though, partisan bravado isn't enough. There's too much to this story. And after the election, Ames is called to testify. And he names nine people that he gave shares to, including Colfax. Colfax has to go before Congress, testifies that he, he says he put down $500 for stock but never consummated the deal. Fortunately, records are obtained that show both the stock was issued $1,200 worth and it was deposited in Colfax's bank account. That's enough for 20 shares. Ames is now mad that he should be the only one suffering in a scandal that had a lot of actors in it. And he calls out the sitting vice president during the inquiry and says that he's lying. The plain dealer called the scandal our national disgrace and said the VP was in a tight place. A cartoon widely distributed showed Colfax as a samurai with Uncle Sam telling him to commit Harry Carey. There is indeed a move to impeach Colfax as vice president, but it's in the waning days of his term and it's a party line vote and there aren't enough votes for the impeachment. Nonetheless, that scandal hangs over Skylar Colfax in his remaining days. Now, he'll say... To anyone who asks, it's all Ames' fault. He didn't have involvement in this. Um, Ames' lying is what caused the problems. And um, You know, I mean, one of the congressmen who were implicated in the same scandal as Colfax is going to become the next vice president. And then, in 1880, one of the congressmen implicated is going to become James Garfield, the the President of the United States. So Colfax, throughout the rest of his years, is often looking at it. Why did he get saddled with something that didn't seem to be as as big of a deal for other people? Henry Wilson will die in office, uh, the, the man who replaced Colfax as vice president. Grant's second term will show that there are a number of scandals at the presidential level, or at least what he should have been in charge of, including the whiskey ring, which was extorting people to get federal whiskey licenses uh, throughout the country. and was an enormous scandal. And then a few other smaller scandals and misplaced funds and things like that. So Colfax, I think, always felt that he 
for this transgression, he got um, he got too too much attention focused on him. Frankly, though, um, evidence is there that he did what we at least nowadays view as wrongdoing, and what many at the time would view as wrongdoing, even if it was a little more common practice in Washington D.C. But here's what I think is important to note about uh, about this time. So, Vice President Colfax, through history, has been linked mostly with Credit Mobilier, right? Um, had a long life before that, a life of fighting for civil rights, of fighting against slavery, um, taking some good positions we today as moderns would really support and putting himself on the line, not being kind of a quibbler or a moderator all the time, but really putting himself on the line for it. And yet I think that that's a classic debate of the of history of how we look at things and there's you know some that will say look at how corrupt the republicans were but democrats at this time wanted to get the reins of power back and sort of hand it over to the south and create a reconstruction nightmare for african americans that led to many of the problems that we have today so there's this balance in history, and you see it go back and forth. We're looking at Grant with better eyes than we used to in history. If you pull out a history textbook from the 1940s, even the 1960s, it's not going to look favorably at Grant. It's going to seem as a bit of an incompetent bumbler. Nowadays, history books and talking about Grant are going to talk about how he fought the Ku Klux and, and uh, fought for Reconstruction and did some other significant things and downplay those. And it's that's happening for Grant. For vice presidential figures, there's not that rescue effort because it's not seen as important. So Colfax just becomes like a footnote in history. But it's an interesting question between what's worse, right? Being corrupt or being on the right side of issues. And I don't think you ever get around that. And that's something that studying Vice President Colfax brings up. There's one last chapter in Colfax's life from the Credit Mobilier scandal up until his death in 1885. Indeed, it's the reason he was traveling to Mankato on that fateful day. And that's that beginning in 1875, 10 years after the death of Abraham Lincoln, there's a group at Springfield that's looking for a speaker. And then they hear the story that, that Schuyler Colfax was the last person to shake hands with Lincoln. And they ask him to speak. And he makes a momentous speech that brings the crowd to tears on the memory of this great president. And from that day, for 10 more years, Colfax is going to travel around the country making speeches about Abraham Lincoln. His story of his last moments and how good he was how he should be remembered in history. Indeed, Schuyler Colfax, perhaps at the expense of his own memory in history, is going to be one of the factors turning Lincoln from just a president into a political legend in American politics. One of his favorite quotes of Lincoln's, which he repeats in 1877 in his speech, is, let us have faith that might makes right, and in that faith let us, to the end, dare to do our duty. I want to thank you for listening to the Vice Presidents of the United States podcast. Um, you know, my podcast is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Check it out if you haven't. If you like the program, rate us. Let somebody know about it. That's the best way you can help. And I thank you for listening.